millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do we reduce the very high number of gun deaths in America? Is the best solution new legislative options? Or does this highly polarized debate need to be reframed? Perhaps both. Gun deaths, a public health crisis with Dr. Patrick Carter. I don't think you can solve this problem using the sort of science-based approach I've talked about without engaging the people who own guns. We need to understand what things will, will change behaviors. And to do that, we need to engage with firearm owners around common sense solutions. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? There are few topics that are more polarizing than gun rights versus gun control, and yet we are faced with an emergency. In 2020, the last year for which numbers are available, more than 45,000 Americans were killed in shootings, and that includes accidents and suicides. That's more than the number of deaths on American highways. In fact, mass shootings that we hear so much about are only a small percentage of the overall number of gun-related deaths. So we thought it would be helpful for our listeners who own guns, as well as for those who see them as a massive threat to our safety, to dial down the emotion in this episode and look at the issue of gun deaths as a public health issue. Dr. Patrick Carter is a professor of emergency medicine and health behavior at the University of Michigan. He's also a leading expert on firearm injury prevention. Dr. Carter joins us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. So let's look first at the numbers of gun-related injuries and deaths uh, in America, and especially among children and teenagers. Have they been rising in recent years? That's a great question. So is that nationwide, we've had over 45,000 firearm fatalities. That's uh, the highest absolute number that we've ever seen. And that's actually an increase of about almost 14% over the prior year. What is particularly troubling is that when we look specifically among children and teen populations, so the age of 1 to 19, we see actually that the rate of increase 
is double that. So it's almost 30% higher. So twice what the rate of increase was among the general population. And that's driven mostly by firearm homicides. And, you know, we did an analysis in 2016 looking at sort of the leading causes of death among children and teens. And we found at that time, motor vehicle crashes were the leading cause of death and firearms were the second leading cause of death, which was particularly troubling at that time. But now in 2020, with this most recent data, we've seen that firearms have actually risen now to be the leading cause of death for children and teens in the United States. And it's not because automotive deaths, although they've declined a great deal over the last couple of decades, they haven't been declining in the last couple of years, as I understand it. Well, so you're right that we've seen some um, actual increase in motor vehicle crash deaths in some recent years. Uh, so that's fairly susceptible to economic changes. But if you look more broadly over the past 50 years, what we see is sort of the tale of two types of injury and two types of injury prevention. And motor vehicle crash deaths in the 1950s were at an all-time high. And through the past 50 years, through the application of rigorous injury prevention science, we've been able to decrease motor vehicle crash deaths by over 70% in this country. And that's through making roads safer, making cars safer, changing driver behavior around things like uh, drinking and driving and around speeding and seatbelt use, as well as improving our ability to respond when a crash does happen in terms of EMS systems in this country and, and uh, providing the type of uh, intensive trauma care that's necessary to have people survive those types of injuries. Contrast that with what we've done with firearm deaths in this country. We haven't applied that same type of rigorous science to this problem writ large. That raises the question, um, can we learn from our reduction in motor vehicle deaths and road safety initiatives to bring down the n number of firearms deaths in the United States? We absolutely can. So if we apply the same type of rigorous science to firearm injury deaths, we, I believe, can achieve the same results. If we think about this as a problem, not just of a single thing, but of uh, a multifaceted problem with lots of potential solutions, things from everything from engineering, how we construct guns and how we construct firearm safes, to how we change behavior around how people own and use guns, to how we address populations that are at particularly high risk and shouldn't own guns or shouldn't have access to guns in the moment where they're in particular crisis, then I think we can really change the direction on firearm deaths. And we've done that with cars. We've done that with uh, drownings in this country. We've done that with all types of injury-related issues. And we've done it without you know, the, there's often an extremist view of, you know, the answers here are either no guns or everybody has access to guns. And and we've, we've done those kind of things without having those extremist views on cars and pools and other injury prevention issues. We've done it by sort of taking this reasoned science-based approach to the problem. And, and to me, that's what's, that's what's needed here. So in your view, it has nothing to do with gun rights versus gun control? No, not at all. It has to do with firearm safety. And it has to do with science and how we apply injury prevention science to this problem and figure out what are the things that work and what are the things that don't work and move the things that work forward. Uh, the other thing I see that often gets uh, put out there in kind of the mass media is that there's a, people focus on a singular solution and it's often in the policy realm. And I think policy is important and there are 
policy-based solutions to this problem, but it's not the only solution. When we think about how we've moved the needle on reducing uh, car crash deaths in this country, we have uh, tackled the problem from all angles. We've addressed driver behavior, which is an individual level change. We have addressed uh, engineering solutions in terms of how we build cars. We have addressed how people interact with each other. And then we've addressed community-wide issues and and policy-based issues. And we think about that as different levels of intervention in the science world. And, and we need interventions for firearm safety that are at all those levels. In your research, you show some pretty powerful findings about just the way that firearms are kept in the home can have a big impact on the risk level in that home. What are some of the details about how people manage the firearms in their households that can make them safer? Well, I certainly think, you know, it starts with how firearms are stored and who has access to them in the home. And so I think, you know, especially when you think about the population of children and teens. So if you think about younger children are most susceptible to you know, unintentional injuries. So finding a unsecured firearm that may be loaded and, you know, injuring themselves or injuring somebody else. Adolescents, we see, we start to see an increase in the risk for especially self-inflicted injury in those adolescent years with adolescents experiencing a, a crisis or an event that happens that uh, is very distressing and causes them a lot of psychological distress. And then access to a firearm in that moment with an impulsive teen becomes a, a, a substantial coalescence of risk. And so, you know, if we think about what are the solutions to that at the individual level, we think about how people store guns. Storing them safely, I think, is is a first step and, and having them locked up and so that teens don't have access to them and young children can't find them, I think, is a, is a really, you know, crucial first step. We know that child access prevention laws, for example, do have an impact on how people store guns and reducing the potential for injury, especially among children and teens. And there's another example of how we can change behaviors both at the individual level and all the way up through the policy level to address the risks of injury. I'm speaking from Guilford, Connecticut, where several years ago, a teenager by the name of Ethan Song was killed when um, he and a friend were playing with a gun uh, that was owned by the father of a friend. And the result of that terrible death, and, and it really did grip the community here, was Ethan's Law, which has now been passed by the state of Connecticut, which says that gun owners would be required to secure their firearms in a secure gun storage or safety device if a person underage is likely to gain access to that firearm without permission. Uh, that's one case of where the law could be strengthened in a uh, hopefully bipartisan way. In Connecticut, Republicans voted in favor of this and were part of the solution. Right. That's an example of you know what I would call a child access prevention type law. If we dig even deeper into that, so the thing that we hear from firearm owners is that they really want to have access to a firearm you know, in the moment when they feel like they need to protect themselves. How do we think about how we can help solve this problem of helping people and encouraging people to store their firearms in a, in a more safe manner while also 
respecting the reasons why they own firearms. And so here's where an example of an engineering solution might work. We've seen some development in recent years in both um, fingerprint-specific firearms as well as uh, fingerprint-specific gun safes that allow only certain people to access the safe. And that type of engineering solution could be a middle ground type solution where firearm owners have a safe that only you know the owner is able to access that prevents teens from accessing it, but still allows them to have the gun in the moment when they feel like they need it for protection. And so those types of middle ground solutions may be one type of approach to this, but there are a lot of scientific and research questions that come out of that. How good is the technology? How often does it fail? What are the things that we would need to do in terms of promoting this among gun owners and making them feel like this is a, a type of technology that they would want to take? Those are behavioral changes and behavioral uptake questions that we think about in terms of prevention science. Access to guns is often a factor in some of these mass shootings, or especially uh, mass shootings that involve a teenage perpetrator. Talk to us a little bit about how helping restrict that access maybe breaks that chain that leads a out of control or psychologically damaged kid from from actually carrying out these violent fantasies. Right. I think it's also we know that teens are are more impulsive, um, that they haven't d- developed the same levels of maturity as older adults who might own and operate firearms, and and so that certainly plays a factor in the access to a firearm and that impulsivity sort of combining in the moment of distress or a, a mental health crisis to to either perpetrate you know external violence in the case of these mass shootings or or self inflicted violence, and so if we think about what are the solutions to access. You know, we already talked about individual level things like storage that can be done. We also think about the parallels here to motor vehicle crash injury are apropos in that, you know, when we had high rates of drinking and driving and alcohol involved motor vehicle crashes in this country, one of the solutions that we put in place at a policy level was we raised the drinking age to 21 because we recognized that kids, uh, adolescents between that 18 and 21 year old age range were really not capable because of their developmental period of consuming alcohol and then getting in a car and knowing when they should and shouldn't drive after that. I'd like to ask you about a few misconceptions that many people have about gun violence. Um, The mass shootings, what happened in Uvalde, Texas, Buffalo, New York, as you mentioned, get by far the most attention in the media. But are they the leading cause of deaths? especially among young people? No, they're not. I mean, they're, they're horrific and tragic events. And as we've seen, you know, over the past uh, several weeks, but by and large, they're actually a small portion of the overall number of firearm deaths that we see. So among children and teens specifically, about 65% of firearm deaths are due to firearm homicide. About 30% are due to firearm suicides and about 3% are due to unintentional firearm injuries. And uh, one of the other misconceptions that I think is out there is that these types of deaths only happen among certain populations, that this is a problem of urban firearm deaths that only occur in urban settings. Um, But in actuality, that's not true. So what we see in the data is that firearm deaths, especially among children and teens, occur at relatively equal rates across rural and suburban and urban settings. This is a problem that affects every American community. 
This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And we're talking with Dr. Patrick Carter of the University of Michigan about ways to address the problem of gun violence in America. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's a sense of division and despair around the carnage, especially recently, that, that's caused by people with firearms. As a nation, do we need to ask ourselves questions that we simply haven't been asking enough, or do we need to reframe this, this whole debate? So um, my take is that we need to stop thinking about it as a debate. We need to think about it as a public health issue and a science issue. What does the data show about what works to solve this problem? So what are the risk and protective factors for firearm injuries across the board? And how do we develop prevention-based solutions? And then studying through the data what works to reduce firearm injury and death and what doesn't, and then taking those things that work and really broadly disseminating them throughout the nation. When you frame it in that public health way, the same way we've approached motor vehicle crash deaths, the same way we've approached drowning deaths, the same way we've approached every other injury-related issue, focuses us on the idea that there are common goals of reducing firearm injury and death, and it takes us away from that polarized debate that has been going on in this country for a long time. I really like that idea that we should take a science-based approach and not focus on this as a debate where people score political points. But it's hard to avoid the, you know, the discussions that are are going on around the country. And, and one of those is the claim that firearms have changed a lot over the years. And that they are much more lethal, they have a greater capacity today. What do you find about that? So there is there is evidence in the data that we're seeing, both in terms of the guns that are sold and the guns that are recovered from crime events, that the types of firearms that we're seeing are higher caliber, more lethal firearms, and that that's clearly having an impact on the severity of the injuries that we're seeing and likely also the number of deaths that we're seeing. Exactly what the answers are to solve that, I think we don't have good data on yet. I mean, there is some suggestion, obviously, for these mass shooting type events, that if we were to limit higher capacity magazines, that that might be a solution to that problem. It won't solve all firearm violence problems, but, uh, but it might be one solution to try and see what the data shows. 
Gun control supporters have long complained about legislation in Congress passed years ago that discouraged federal government research into gun accidents and gun-related killings, trying to find reasons for them. What's the current state of play? So I think it has been for uh, a long period of time. Uh, So there was this drought of research for uh, probably around 25 years. And the impact of that, when we look at motor vehicle crash deaths versus versus firearm deaths as, as leading causes of death for children and teens, you can clearly see the impact of that in terms of our inability to address this issue with this sort of science-based approach that I've outlined. Now, more recently, we've seen that the federal government has begun to fund research in this area again, and I think that's very promising. I think the volume of funding that's currently available is is not nearly commensurate with the burden of disease. If we think about the amount of funding that goes towards cancer research or motor vehicle crash research, those are clearly important issues that deserve a lot of funding to address them, but so are firearm deaths. During the pandemic, there was a big uptick in gun sales, and, and not just in rural areas, you know, the sort of stereotypical idea of who might be a, a gun buyer, but also in, in urban areas and minority communities and, and with other groups. What's going on here? Why do you think, despite all the controversy, guns seem to be getting more popular in this country? Exactly what are the drivers of that in terms of why people feel the need to buy guns? Um, uh, we don't we don't know from the data. We do know that there were a lot of first time purchasers during the pandemic, and and whether that's being driven by fear of what's going on in the pandemic is not clear. But I do think those are clear areas for research and future research to understand sort of what those drivers are. How much is polarization um, holding up constructive, really common sense measures? like the ones that you've been advocating? I think it's a key part of the problem. It's also a key part of the solution. I don't think you can solve this problem using the sort of science-based approach I've talked about without engaging the people who own guns and have guns safely in the parts of the solution. We need to understand what things will, will change behaviors. And to do that, we need to engage with firearm owners around common sense solutions. And we've done some of that as part of the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention that that we have at the University of Michigan. You know, we've worked with rural gun owners around safe storage solutions. And, and you know, uh, when you focus again on sort of how do we reduce injury and death, it's, it's actually, you get past that polarization. And gun owners are very willing to engage in what are common sense ways to keep people in their homes safe without restricting their legal right to own and have firearms. Dr. Patrick Carter, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having us today. Next, our recommendation and conversation. So Richard, you have a recommendation that kind of falls on my side of the aisle this week. Both of us have said it before, but it's worthwhile reading and listening to people who you don't usually agree with. And in this case, I'm recommending that people read the weekly online newsletter, which is not very long and can easily be delivered into your into your email inbox by David French, 
who is a, a, a social and political conservative, um, but someone who's kind and respectful uh, to Americans at large and to those who disagree with him. Um, this week, he has been writing about guns. Uh, David is a gun owner and believes that owning a gun in for his family is is a good thing and uh, helps make them f- feel more safe. But he also writes that the threat to America's gun culture comes from the gun rights movement itself. The threat, he says, is gun idolatry, a form of gun fetish that's aggressive, irresponsible, and potentially destabilizing to American democracy. French is a wonderful writer and one of the group of conservatives who are fell under the label of anti-Trumpers or never-Trumpers uh, in early in the, the Trump administration. And it's a group that includes a lot of interesting thinkers and defies a lot of the expectations perhaps some of our listeners would have of how conservatives think and what their values are. And next, our conversation. You know, Jim, we've had a pretty dispassionate conversation about gun deaths, but grief and deeply held emotions inevitably are also part of the debate, as they should be. And it's nothing short of tragic, for instance, when when kids at school hear an alarm bell and they think it's a shooter rather than just the possibility of a, of a fire somewhere, as we did when we were kids. I think that just the threat or the widespread worry about mass shootings has an impact on our collective sense of fear, and it makes our national crisis of distrust in public institutions even worse. You know, it's just so heartbreaking to think about kids going through these shooter drills in their schools and and being forced to to think about this, have this part of the worldview that they live in. It shows how the impact of these horrific events goes beyond even the massive tragedy that happens within these communities. It's spread across the country as a whole. The passion that comes out of these events politically is just such a natural outgrowth of this idea that something about the the moral integrity of, of our world, of our country has been turned upside down or violated. And so, of course, we're, you know, we're angry and, and motivated to, to, to do something. At the same time, the, the more you look at this, the more you see that the, the sense that, wow, this would be so easy to fix. This is so simple. We just need to fix it. When you really dig in, you see that that's just not true. These things are not so easy to fix. I do think there is room for for public policy, uh, certainly uh, in the case of of regulating gun ownership or gun use the way that we regulate cars. I don't think anybody's suggesting, apart from extremists, that we we stop driving or we're not allowed to to have cars. And yet we have uh, sensible rules around uh, driving safety and licensing that have helped reduce uh, the number of road fatalities by a considerable number over the last 30, 40 years or so. And, and then something else, I'm a 
fairly standard liberal when it comes to guns. I do believe in in uh, banning uh, military weapons. I think that do- bump stocks should be um, contained, and and believe that red flag laws should be passed as an absolute minimum. But I think I do have to separate my views that are at times impassioned with what's actually going to work. And what we've been discussing today is more around that pragmatic end of of this whole huge concern that we have. But there's an interesting thing about this discussion, Richard, that's almost a little schizophrenic. When these incidents happen, we enter into a big discussion of, of various gun control options and almost none of them touch on the, the, the category that's responsible for the vast majority of gun deaths, which is, is people who own guns illegally, people who use guns illegally. Uh, we have all these ideas about different ways to restrict or limit the, the legal ownership of guns. And some of those, I think, are really legitimate conversations to have. But we tend not to talk very much about things to get illegal guns off the street. And, you know, I mean, there were a thousand murders in Chicago last year. I, I would be shocked if more than 5% of them were committed by people using legally owned firearms. I feel like there are gun control measures that address that. In New York, we had the stop and frisk program back in the 90s and, and, and into the aughts. By one estimate, it prevented something like 500 murders a year because it took thousands of illegal guns off the streets. There are all kinds of legitimate objections to stop and frisk. I think constitutionally it's kind of dubious, but it was an effective gun control measure. And if we're going to have an honest conversation about about limiting gun deaths, then we need to be including a range of options that, that includes things like incarcerating people who get caught with illegal guns. I think we need to be having a more honest discussion about gun violence across the board, and that might be one that would make liberals and conservatives uncomfortable in their respective areas. I mostly agree with you. It's been a surprisingly civil conversation, Jim. Um, It it strikes me that uh, you've had an outbreak of common sense this morning. Oh, I haven't had my coffee yet. (laughs) It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is the excellent Miranda Schaefer. And this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.